Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I am having a major fangirl moment over today's podcast guest. Welcome to the Super Bloom podcast. Holy moly. I don't handle fangirl moments very well. I don't. I can't put a sentence together properly. I usually like to write a whole essay going into our episodes um, if I have the time. And I really had the time. For this one, there is no excuse except I just choked. I got too nervous. I got too anxious. I am such a fangirl for writers. And OMG, do we have just a fantastic writer that I am sitting down with today? I, 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 like, I, I can't believe it. I, I truly can't believe it. I've been so excited and I'm too nervous because I put this level of expectation of, okay, I want to, you know, honor today's guest with this beautiful essay in appreciation for what she's put out into the world and how far she's come and in her ability to share her vulnerabilities within life that make others feel less alone in the world and that just give their hearts hugs. And I, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to do it. All right. I got too nervous. I didn't know what to say. And so instead, I'm just going to jump right into her bio. Holy moly, guys. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. And today's guest is Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl Strayed is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail, which has sold more than 4 million copies worldwide and was made into an Oscar-nominated film, I read this book when it first came out, segue, and it is left an imprint on my brain and on my heart. And every time I am traveling and doing something scary and something that I, I'm unsure of and but know that on the other side of it, I'm going to have a better understanding of who I am. I always think of Cheryl. I think of Cheryl and her Pacific Crest Trail journey. And I'm left feeling braver and... Uh, Okay, uh, back to the bio. Uh, her best-selling collection of Dear Sugar columns, Tiny Beautiful Things, was adapted for a Hulu television series that will be released tomorrow, April 7th, 
on Hulu. I cannot wait to watch it. In 2016, the book was adapted as a play that continues to be staged in theaters around the world. Strait is also the author of the critically acclaimed novel Torch and the best-selling collection Brave Enough, which brings together more than 100 of her inspiring quotes. Her award-winning essays and short stories have been published in the Best American Essays, The New York Times, The Washington Post Magazine, Vogue, and elsewhere. Strayed has also made two hit podcasts, Sugar Calling and Dear Sugars, which she co-hosted with Steve Almond. She lives in Portland, Oregon. Oh, holy moly, without further ado, here is me stumbling my way through a conversation with Cheryl Strayed. It's so nice to meet you. I've um, I I read Wild as many people did eleven years ago, almost eleven years ago. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of. I was very nervous and excited and emotional having this conversation with you because your story really stuck with me, and it has stuck with me throughout my years. And I'm often reminded of um, the 1100 mile journey you took and how often that can apply to so many experiences in life Mm. um, that often have to be done the only way you can, which is one step at a time. Uh, I want to, I want to start by just talking about your name, which I know has been a subject of conversation in many interviews that you've had. It's really beautiful to me because Strayed is not uh, a name that you were born with. It's a name that you chose. And I think it's really interesting how much of, you you know, the inciting incidents of your life um, began around the age of 25. And this was also around the time when you chose your your name. So yeah. could you share with our listeners how you found yourself in a position staring at a piece of paper in which you would be deciding on how you would be addressed and what your name would be yeah. in a new chapter within your life? It's kind of a long story, but but absolutely. Um, you're right that that time in my mid-20s, I think for so many of us, it is a time where you, you're trying to figure out who you are. Um, you're becoming. I like to think of it as that 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 decade of becoming. And what happened to me is I had, uh, my mother had died at the age of 45, very suddenly of cancer when I was 22. We were both seniors in, uh, in college at the time that she died. She died on the spring break of our fresh, of our senior years. And she, I lost my mom. You know, I think it's always devastating to lose your mom, but for me to lose her right at that time, at the age of 22, when I was really becoming a woman, it absolutely unmoored me. And and I didn't have a father. My father had been abusive and had left my life many years before when, when I was six. And so I was really an orphan. I had married super young. And um, my ex-husband, my then husband at the time, and I had, when we married, we because we were feminists, and I was like, I'm not taking your, your last name on. And so what we did is we joined our name. So I had this, my name was Cheryl Nyland Liddig back in the day. And um, it was, I never, the hyphenated name never worked for me. It was like this big, big, like nobody could ever pronounce it or spell it or just didn't feel right. So when we decided to divorce my ex-husband, I, you know, I loved him, but we had gotten married way too young. Um, we, we really, I was thinking, well, what would, what will my name be? I knew that I, didn't want to return to the name I'd had before I got married, the name I grew up with, um, my father's name, this father who not only wasn't in my life, but was, you know, has been really a dark force in my life. And of course, as a writer, for me, words are, I mean, I think for all of us, words have power, but but as somebody who really, whose life is words, it, they have even extra power. So I knew that this this moment I was in my in my life, you know, grieving my mother, reckoning with my past, deciding to end a marriage that I loved in a lot of ways, but I knew had to end so that I could become. I knew that that it was really important that I step forward into this new life with a new name. And, and it turned out to be a kind of easy thing when my husband and I were doing a kind of do-it-yourself divorce. Um, there was this line on the forum that just said, my last name after this divorce will be. And I was like, wow, um, you can write anything in that, in that, on that blank line, in that blank space. And so I thought about it 
um, for several months, tried out different words. I wanted to find a word that would reflect who I was, not only in that moment, but who I was in my life. I wanted to find a word that felt grounded in, in that, in that truth of my existence. And also one that would last the test of time, that stay on the test of time and be something that, that I grew into, that I didn't just carry for that little era of my, you know, youthful 20 something, but that would age into my life. And it has. I've been Cheryl Strayed longer than I've been any other name. And it feels like really who I am. I mean, the definition, I, I just looked it, up, looked it up, but to stray, you know, the verb to stray means to move away aimlessly from a group or from the right course or place, mm-hmm. which I, I, I just knowing how much you were about to move away from all of these, you know, the culmination of things that had, uh, you talk about this period of time that you just want, essentially self-destructing, you know, even though you were leaving a marriage that you knew wasn't right in a lot of ways. Um, it's not like all of a sudden you had this fantastical year of becoming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, Candace, we become sometimes the hard way, right? On the jagged path. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yes. Yeah. And I feel like it, it, it was so appropriate. I mean, so during this time, uh, you were obviously as well grieving your mother and you're in just you were around the age of 24, 25. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying. Like, I do think that um, it's so important. And I think too, especially young people listening to us, it's, but you know, frankly, gosh, we both know people in middle age too, who, who stray uh, down the, the path, the, the unexpected path. The way I think of that word strayed is it is true that I was self-destructing and I was doing things that that were really harmful for me and dangerous in a lot of ways. And it's also true that to some degree, I had to test that kind of danger and destruction to figure out like the greater path that I was going to take. And so at this time that I decided to change my name, it was literally like made official um, the month before I began to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. So what, what was going on there was like, I had to walk down some of the wrong paths to get on the right path. And so to me, to, to go, as, to be astray at that time um, was acknowledging the times that I'd wandered off the expected path or the safe path, but also acknowledging that in a lot of ways, so many of us who bloom or who become or who grow or evolve, what we figure out we have to do is we have to walk a path. We have to blaze a trail um, that is unexpected. That isn't the one that, that we, that others around us assumed that we had to take. I didn't know um, that I was going to have to live my life, for example, without my mom. And then I found myself in a situation where I had to, I didn't know that I was going to have to um, really separate and leave somebody I loved in my twenties, my ex-husband and, and go on and find what it, to see what it felt like to live alone in the world. And, but those are, those are the directions that um, life took me in. And so to sort of wrap my arms around that idea of being astray was really empowering, you know, to me. This point in my life, I feel like I look back on my early twenties and I used to look back around that time. Personally, I would like with a lot of judgment of the decisions that I was making. And it's so interesting to, you know, and I know this is varying degrees. Some people have different opinions on this, but the the general consensus of your, you know, frontal cortex, like the part of your brain that is, that is responsible for really good decision-making in your life isn't fully formed and operating until your mid-20s. And, you know, they throw out the number 25. Right. And so it's been so wonderful in adulthood to look back at that period of time and go, oh, no, this was just, it wasn't any fault. It wasn't that I wasn't rising to the occasion. I was just experiencing life the best way that I knew how with the tools that I had at that time. And with so much life that you had lived up until that point of being 25, you know, marriage at a young age, an abusive father, you know, a single mom who, you know, you you wonderfully talk about your mother where you said, you know, economically, you had no money growing up, but emotionally, your home was so rich and full of love. Yeah. You know, to to go through all of these emotional waves and then to lose, you know, 
your mom and lose a lot of yourself it sounds like do you look back at that period of time it, w- at what point did you were you able to look back at your younger self with this newfound realization of just gentle grace for her or have you always been able to do that no i think what you say candace is so real and true and i wish i wish we did a better job of as a, as a society of really talking openly about this this the thing that science tells us which is that you know our brains aren't fully developed until our mid 20s and there are so many things that i think young people feel ashamed about when they they shouldn't and there are certain expectations that we put on people i think too young and uh, you know if there were i think uh, if this were more of a we had more consciousness around like okay you're still actually really growing until your mid twenties. I mean, I think you're still always growing, of course, but really like an actual brain development ways, um, maturing. And, you know, so some of those expectations for achievement or perfection or doing, you know, the quote unquote, the right thing that we put on young people is really destructive. And, and I think a lot of us, as we grow older, I'm 54 now, you know, I have, absolutely done exactly what you said, where you get a little bit older and you look back and you say, oh, gosh, you know, I wish I hadn't been so hard on myself. You know, I I write this Dear Sugar advice column. And one thing that I um, and hear a lot from people who who have lived beyond their 20s, you know, when you when they're asked that question, like, what would you tell your younger self? Almost always what people say is I would tell him or I would tell her it's going to be okay. And you're doing great. And don't worry so much, you know, that you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and you will find your way. And so for myself, I mean, I think that that gentleness and grace you speak of, which is so important, it came in little bits. You know, um, I think my hike on the PCT that I wrote about in Wild while I was on the trail, those glimmers of Forgiving myself, accepting myself were, were coming to me. But, but I think they came really very much in greater force as I go, moved into my 30s. And certainly as I began to write about that time of my life, which I've written about in Wild, obviously, and also in Tiny Beautiful Things, my Dear Sugar book, where I tell so many stories from my teens and 20s. And there's no way, I think, to to write about yourself, your life without like realizing, oh, okay, I was only human and humans are complicated and they sometimes make mistakes and they also sometimes um, triumph and do and, and find beauty and, and find their courage and their strength. And I feel like I, like all of like, like you and everyone listening and all of the people on the planet are all of that. And so, yeah, I, I certainly look back with a lot of gentleness, even when I shake my head and laugh at what a knucklehead I was sometimes. <laughs> I feel like also, is your, how old are your kids? My kids are 17 and 18. Yeah. And that is an interesting thing too. I think when you start to see, you know, teenagers that you're watching grow and go and, and see glimpses of yourself from when you were that age and go like, oh, sweet thing. You just, you were doing the best you, you could, you know, it's like you get reminded of just that youth and that innocence and all those charged emotions and not knowing where to put them and how to to walk in the world with them. Yeah. I've I've found that at least. But how, so and do you have children as well? I do. I have um I have a seven year old and two year old and then I also have stepdaughters um that I've been, you know, very fortunate enough to to learn a lot from watching them grow older as well. And yeah. so um but that that was a very interesting element of having a blended family that I didn't anticipate in parenting was just how much of your own experience in adolescence gets reflected back to you by watching, you know, it's like watching Bambi walk for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I mean, I think that's really, that's really true. And especially it's really true in the teen years because most of us don't remember like being toddlers very well or like that those first steps we t- took or whatnot but we most of us do vividly remember our teen years and so to see how universal the struggle is to be a teenager um is is fascinating and what's what's really interesting for me as somebody who as dear sugar has 
given advice to lots of people, for example, um, how hard it is to feel like I'm useful to my teenagers because I feel like I see them, I see so clearly um, how to how to help them or how to guide them or maybe uh, things that they might like to know or hear. And it just feels like impossible to communicate those things with them. You know, when I say, oh, I know how it feels to go through this because I also had that experience when I was your age, just almost, you know, you can almost physically see them, you know, closing <laughs> off. <Recoil. But>, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that, and, and I did the same thing to my mom. I mean, I think that that's one of the, you know, the, the sort of painful challenges. I mean, I love, I think it's glorious um, to raise teenagers, but I also think that it's, it's really a humbling experience because you think, you know, developmentally so much of what they're doing is finding their independence from you. And so it's really hard as a parent to feel like you can also give them advice. Yeah. And knowing that there's, it doesn't matter. Sometimes you can talk until your face turns blue, but about that's a hot stove. It's a very hot stove. Don't touch the hot stove. (laughs) I touch the hot stove and I'm going to tell you it's hot. And sometimes they just have to touch the hot stove because we have all had to do that in our own lives. And that is part of uh, figuring it out for yourself and that level of independence. Um, When you did, uh, I, I think it's so interesting from like now, it must be interesting looking back at your your hike on the Pacific Crest Trail and just the isolation that you experienced. And of course, you know, now we are a generation that have experienced various forms of isolation because of the global pandemic. You know, so many people were isolated. It was their first time that they were just home with themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking so much of like what that experience must have been like for you. I mean, obviously you had your family around you and that came with its own experiences, but did you have other people reaching out to you um, because you had had this really unique experience of isolation? Like, was there, what did you feel like more prepared for it in a sense? Yeah. You mean that like the aloneness that the pandemic brought for so many people? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting to me because so much of the experience of solitude is dependent on not what's happening outside of you, but what's happening within you. Right. You know, we can decide, um, to to use solitude in ways that are incredibly creative and constructive to us. Like when I was on, alone on the PCT, I was doing that but with great intention because I knew that I needed an experience that would require me to rely only on myself, to be, you know, to suffer the consequences of mistakes and to be the the one who got to hold that triumph if if things went well. And to just simply rely on on that um you know, my own strength and courage and also to really get quiet enough to hear that deep inner voice within me. And I think that some people took that opportunity that the pandemic handed us and, and they, and they did that, that they found in that, that isolation, in that requirement to keep your distance, they found the ability to um, make that something that, that equaled inner growth and maybe inner strength. And then others felt, you know, I think that, of course, loneliness, if it feels forced, if it's like, yeah, you're, you got to go sit over in that room and you can't, you can't um, come see us because of this virus, that can feel really punishing and really lonely and really destructive, like the opposite of that kind of um, growth oriented solitude I'm talking about. And I think that like a lot of people, I experienced both kinds of those things during the pandemic. Um, and I also wit- witnessed again, back to my teens, like, you know, I, as an adult and as a writer, you know, I was living with, I live with my husband and my kids, you know, I had those, those people around me and I could, you know, find like that, that the kind of quiet through my writing in, in the, those days of isolation. I didn't feel um, so oppressed by it. I, I certainly missed my friends. I certainly missed being able to travel and see certain people, but I felt like I used it in ways that were creative. But it was interesting to to witness like what happened um, to my teens who, you know, their whole job at that time during that age, my my daughter was the end of eighth grade and my son was the end of ninth grade when the pandemic hit. And all they really want to do is be with peers. And developmentally, that's their work. 
is mm-hmm. to be in the company of peers and to learn all the many, many, many things um, spoken and unspoken that um, kids at that age learn when they're in the company of each other. So to see um, my kids struggle with that and feel um, that isolation and to, to come to find like some sense of balance or strength in it was really the most, I mean, kind of painful, interesting and beautiful thing for me. I would say that my experience of the pandemic was very much through the lens of what happened to our young people. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a lot what I've been reckoning with, I think, Mm -hmm. in the last year. I found out two weeks into the pandemic that I was pregnant. And yeah. so, (laughs) So while, you know, watching also teenagers who needed that social stimulation for their own health, really. And then, you know, I was not the best version of myself as a pregnant woman Mm. who my like mental health was solely dependent on needing to just protect and like mama bear and like cave in and nest. And so it's been really interesting to look back and, um, and look back at with a lot of like forgiveness and understanding that we were all just doing uh, once again the best we could with the tools that we had at the time. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I've been really curious lately in my own personal life about a relationship with solitude Mm -hmm. and how, and exactly to what you're speaking to, like listening to that inner voice of just knowing. And that's a practice. You know, that's not something that everyone does very well. And I mean, would you say that you achieved that easier because of the you kind of this like mm-hmm. journey and experience that you went on and you had to practice it. I mean, you you hiked the Pacific Crest Trail for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, so which you would see people occasionally, but you spent a lot of time on your own. And are you able to tap into that practice now? Have you found that you've lost it and had to refind it uh in as like time has gone on from that experience? I find it every time I go for a walk alone or every time I meditate. There's something about walking that that really does bring up all of those kind of deepest thoughts that sort of wind their way into my mind. There's something that you do with the rhythm of the body and movement and that quiet, like when you allow your mind not to be distracted by something else. Um, I mean, I love to walk with friends, don't get me wrong. My favorite friend date as a walking conversation date. But, you know, it's really important to me to walk alone. And it's important in in two ways. One is that it does feed my soul in that way that we're talking about where, where 
it gives, it makes room for that. I think that core voice within you, that core self who knows who you are and what you want, it gives room for that voice to emerge. It also really helps me as a writer. I think anyone undertaking any kind of creative project, and it doesn't have to just be in the arts, like really any, any kind of question you might be grappling with professionally, what I find is that, that walking and get having that kind of quiet, um, that solitude, um, the answer will be found because it slowly emerges. And I think that, of course, my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, what it was, it was almost like I went to like graduate school in solitude. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I, I really honestly, by the end of my hike, which was 94 days long, I felt like I had thought about everything in my life, which seems like a crazy thing to say. Um, because like, who can do that? And yet it is what happened. So what I found myself doing, and first of all, I will say I learned a lot about the mind too, because this was 1995. This was before um, we had cell phones and, you know, connect, internet connections and all that. But so, so I wasn't walking with, with a phone in my pocket. I, I didn't have even at the, in those times we were listening to cassette tapes, walk, we had like a Walkman if you wanted to listen to music. Well, I didn't want to carry that on my, on my hike, you know? So I found my mind really wanting to occupy itself. So I would sing songs to myself, or I'd try to remember the lyrics. And, and I wrote about that a while, like this kind of mixtape radio station that would appear in my head. Music jingles from ads I'd listen to, they'd pop into my mind. Well, so too would things like, well, what do I, what sense do I make of having a father who didn't love me well or the way that we hope fathers well? What, what sense do I make about how I'm going to live my life without my mother? What sense do I make about my, this, this burning desire within me to be a writer? And of course, a million smaller questions than those big ones I've just given you examples of. I thought through everything. And the experience of feeling grounded by the end of that was unbelievable. And it's something that is, is still with me today. Now, I've never replicated that 94-day hike since then, sadly. Um, but I do try as often as possible to, to find a piece of that through walking alone. Do you feel like I, I've, that it was a sense of knowing? Like you just had this, this core sense of knowing who you were by the end of it? Yeah. And I think that we all have that that core sense of knowing within us. And it can be really hard to trust it. It can be really hard to identify it. And it can be really hard to listen to it. You know, there are so many, many factors. Um, you know, many of us grow up steeped in families and cultures and communities that say, no, don't, don't trust yourself. Do this because this is the path we're telling you is the best path or this is the person you should love or this is the way you should express yourself or this is what you, you know, what you should do after high school or what job you should take, all those shoulds um, that, we, that we receive explicitly and sometimes just implicitly, right? That we, that we take on ourselves, even though um, people aren't telling us directly, we, we glean it because we look around and we see what other people are doing and we want to conform and be like them. And then what happens if in our core self, we're saying, no, that's not who I am. It's not what I want. I think that so much of growing up is um, and really growing up, I mean, really growing into yourself and becoming, is about being able to to trust that court that is already there within each of us. How long uh, was it between completing your hike to wild coming out? What was that period of time? So I finished my hike on September fifteenth, nineteen ninety five, and I wild was published in March of twenty twelve. I. I wrote it, um, I began writing Wild in like 2008, 2009, right in there. And th there was this gap of years between the experience and the book because um, I really needed time to develop as a writer. I, I wrote, I wrote my first book as a novel called Torch. That was the really the story that was actually in my mind when I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And after that, after Torch was published, I that's when I turned to the idea of of telling the story of my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. And I really needed that time in between the experience and writing about it because, of course, you know, the experience was deeply meaningful. I knew it was meaningful when I was doing it, but it took, took some time 
of growing more and living more and becoming more before I could really look back and and not only tell the story of my experience, but to use my experience to tell that more universal story uh, that is in wild about about all of us. You know, wild isn't just like, look at me, I took a long hike and I was really sad because my mom died terribly young. You know, that that of course it tells that story, but it also tells, I think, a story that's bigger than me. That's what memoir does, is it, it you use the self to tell the bigger story. And I needed some time to to grow as both a human and a writer before I could find that story and tell it. Do you believe that writers should be on the other side of an experience they're going through in order to write about it? Or can someone write their story and their experience while they're walking through it? I think both things can be done. And both things have been done extraordinarily well. There is no one, you know, I guess you won't be surprised to hear me say that there's no one path that's the right one. (laughs) Um, I think that that there are, you can write really powerfully sometimes about something that is happening right now with great immediacy and and um, and clarity and passion. And I think sometimes uh, stories benefit from some perspective. You know, I I would have Wild would have been a very different book if I had gotten off the trail and spent the year after the trail write, writing it. Um, I I don't know what the book would be, but I can tell you it'd be profoundly different. So much of what's in Wild is the wisdom I gained in those years in between the hike and my decision to write about it. And when you were approached to be a part of Dear Sugar, what did your life look like at that point? Because this was also within that period of time. Yeah. So I had just, I had just finished the first draft of Wild and sent it to my editor um, it was uh, actually like February of 2010. And I um, was asked to write this advice column, this anonymous advice column on the website, The Rumpus. And it was for no pay and no credit too, because I'd be anonymous. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, and I was at the time, I had two, my kids were young. My husband's a documentary filmmaker, which means we're two artists, you know, really trying to make a living. Neither one of us grew up with any money and had any family support. So we were really living very, very hand to mouth, you know, like honestly, sometimes selling books at the, at Powell's, our our local bookstore that buys used books to like buy groceries, you know, is that we were that broke. And so of course, like, like any, you know, like I tend to do, I trusted my gut, this advice that I would give to other people as sugar. um, I, I took myself, I trusted my gut and I said yes to this gig, even though it made no sense to say yes. And I began writing the Dear Sugar column. I thought it would be this like fun little thing. And and also like who doesn't want to read letters that people write to an anonymous advice columnist, right? You get to hear like all the secrets and all the struggles and all the the little things you don't normally get to find out. And, but what happened is it wasn't just a lark. It became some of the most meaningful work of my life. And, and I decided to really approach it as a writer, um, not as just somebody who was going to toss off, you know, this is what I think you should do. I, I really deeply contemplated the, the letters. And very often I answer back in the form of telling stories about my own life. And, you know, little did I know that that a couple of years later, when Wild came out, it would be just, you know, a few months after Wild was published, my book, Tiny Beautiful Things was published, which is a collection of my dear sugar columns. And, and little did I know that, I, that I would continue, you know, my work as sugar, even to this day. Um, there have been many iterations of dear sugar. It was on the rumpus and then in tiny, beautiful things. And then of course I had a podcast, um, called dear sugars with Steve Almond, um, that we co-hosted together. And then now I'm writing the dear sugar column as a Substack newsletter and the 10th edition, anniversary edition of Tiny Beautiful Things is just out. And mm-hmm. it's about to be a, a show on Hulu is coming out April 7th. And I was a writer and executive producer on the show. So I've really, and oh, and one more thing, Nia Vardalis adapted it for the stage. So it's been a play that's shown in theaters around the world. And it's just ended up being this thing I took a chance on and said, yeah, I'll do for free, has ended up being really a huge part of my life's work and some of the most meaningful work I've ever done 
as a writer. Do you have people come now that obviously it's very obvious who, you know, that you are sugar. Do people come up to you all the time and just seek advice when they realize it? Yeah. (laughs) All the time. And yeah, I should say, so when I first took it on, it was anonymous and I knew from day one, I was like, okay, I'm not going to always be anonymous. I'm just going to do this temporarily anonymously. And then I'll come out and be like, it's me. So everything I always wrote as sugar, all those columns and tiny, beautiful things, even though my name wasn't on them, I wrote it as if it was. And, and it did really, what I found is it made no difference whether I was anonymous or not. And, but yeah, I mean, what's been so cool about this experience, Candace, is so many people they go straight to vulnerability with me. Yeah. You know, we, we don't talk about the weather. Though, uh, I think I did talk to you about the weather when we first got on. <laughs> but, I wanted to make it easy on you. I was like, right. you know what she needs? You know what Cheryl needs to talk about the weather? The that's weather. What. Yeah, that's right. But you know, it's still say like, listen, I just got divorced or I'm scared because I'm, I'm you know, 45 and I'm moving across the country to take a new job, or I don't know what to do with my dysfunctional mother or, you know, fill in the blank. And we get right to it. And we talk about the the important things. So I I treasure that about um, my role as sugar. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting experience to be on the receiving side of that. And I only know that very, like the tiny version I experience of that is because I worked the on tiny, the tiny, beautiful version, the tiny, beautiful version <laughs> um, that I most often get is I worked on a show. I played a character who had a, um, her mom passed away from glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. And so probably a lot of times I get people coming up to me saying that watching that storyline, how it impacted them, whether they lost a parent or a loved one to either a similar cancer or a a form of cancer. And it is a very humbling experience to be on the receiving side of that vulnerability that someone's willing to share with you. And you know that there's nothing you can do to fix it. It's just being there and being present with them mm-hmm. and just saying like, I hear your story and I'm, it matters. And this is like, it just watching them be able to experience a sense of relief of being able to share something of themselves is a very interesting experience when you're not like a paid psychologist. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, it's the gift we receive for that, for being artists, you know? So when you played that role, what you were living out and acting out and showing all those, all those motherless kids out there, I'm, I'm among them. Um, your story matters and it's real and it's complex and it hurts. It hurts to lose somebody who is essential to you. And so many of the messages we get from the culture are the opposite of that. They're like, okay, you know, move on, grieve, you know, have the funeral and then onward we go and look on the bright side and all of that stuff. And of course, it's so important to carry on and to have a sense of optimism, but it's also important to acknowledge that grief doesn't just go away. Mm-hmm. That, you know, here I am, gosh, I'm almost 32 years out from my own mother's death and I miss her every day. I miss her so much. And so, you know, t- for to see you representing that character is a gift that you give to so many people whose hearts are broken. And so when they come up to you and share that with you, you know, that what they're really saying is you were part of my healing. Thank you. And yeah. what a, what a, I mean, I can't think can you have anything better than doing that through the work that we do? Yeah, no, it is um, it truly a humbling experience that is, uh, there's usually no words. It's just a lot of feelings. Yeah. I, yeah, I've been trying to have an understanding, a better understanding of, of grief and its various forms. And, and I'm such a to-do list person. Like I love an itinerary and I love a problem that I can fix. And if that problem can't be fixed with a plan B, I've got like 10 other plans (laughs) that will make it just like be better and fix it. And I always make my therapist laugh with like telling him, like going in there and being like, so this is what's going on. So tell me what to do. Like, what can I just fix it? Like, tell me what I can actionably do to just like make it better. And trying to have a relationship with even something, you know, like, instead of looking and approaching grief as something that needs to be fixed or understood, it's more just holding its hand and accepting that it's just, it's going to, it's there and and making friends with it in a different way. 
and allowing space for that because Absolutely. it you're right it doesn't just go away and yeah. you can't ignore it either no and you know i'm a fixer too and i'm a list maker but yeah what i've learned about grief and about so many things um is that validation is so important and it's so it's really something that a lot of us have to kind of learn to do i know even in my own life i've had to to learn to do this better to say you know, instead of trying to say like, oh, come on, like we can, we can make this better just to say, yeah, that is hard. That really hurts. And then of course, you know, once people feel seen and heard and recognized, then we can move on. Maybe then we can make it better. And, but, and moving on doesn't mean leaving it behind. As I wrote, you know, a lot about this in Wild with my mother, you know, my grief over my mother, the, the solution wasn't to leave it behind. The solution was to learn how to carry it and to, to recognize that um, in every burden, there is a blessing. So, so the burden that I have to bear is I have to live my life without my mother. And it's a burden I feel every single day. And yet I would also cite that experience and that, that love, that real love that I have for my mother that has lasted all of my life. What a blessing how lucky I am that I ever got to love her, that she was my mother and that she will always be with me in the most important ways. And so, I mean, I think that that's so different from leaving something in the past to validate that, that this experience is true um, is, is a form of fixing it. You saying that reminds me of a, a quote of yours that I wrote down from Wild, where you said, I was amazed that what I needed to survive could be carried on my back and most surprising of all, that I could carry it. Mm. And I think that that's like, what a beautiful lesson in our own individual, you know, journeys within ourselves when you realize like, I can do this. When you, when you approach something going, I don't know how I'm going to do it. And you do it anyway. And you realize like, oh, I had it within myself. Like I actually, just when you know you can weather the storm, and how that you get to like carry that sense, like that, again, just going back to the knowing, I, that, that's just kind of been a theme within my life lately. But that quote of yours really uh, stuck out to me. Thank you. Yeah. And that's, it's exactly what I mean when I said to you that it took me some time to figure out like what, you know, how wild was about not just me and like, I took a hike, it was hard. Um, but about all of us. And it was that kind of universal experience um, that I just lived out in my individual body when I, right right from day one, uh, when I began hiking the trail. Everyone who's listening, who's read the book or seen the movie, you, you know that scene where I, there's so much on my backpack that I literally cannot lift it. I just cannot lift it. And yet the one thing I have to do is lift my backpack <laughs> And when I was writing that scene, it really was a teacher to me uh, that this is the meaning of the book, that I had to bear what I could not bear. And I had to do it in a literal sense in the form of the backpack. But the bigger sense, I had to do it in the form of living without my mom and, and bearing the sorrows that, and traumas that I'd experienced in my life and find a way to carry them with me with grace. And when I tapped into that, I realized, oh, okay, there we go. This isn't a story only about me. It's a story about all of us because every one of us has had to do that. And many of us have had to do it many times, you know, um, that we have to say, we have to look at something that we think we cannot do or we, or, or, or carry a burden that we think we cannot carry and do it and move forward and put one foot in front of the other, even when it hurts. And so I think that that is absolutely, when I wrote that line that you just quoted, I wasn't just talking about me. I was talking about you. I was talking about everyone who's ever lived and ever will. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The way you speak about your mother, I get this sense that it's like she just, we're all kind of like looking for the secret of life and the secret of joy and the secret of love. And the way you speak about your mom is as if she just knew the secret all along. And Mm -hmm. I wondered, you know, when you were in your early days of sugar, do you feel like there were parts of you were channeling her in a sense and the way that you were writing back to these to the people that were seeking life's questions where you channeled her answers? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that that my mother had a couple of really amazing qualities. One, one is she was, she was really an optimist. You know, she, she always felt, as you said earlier, you know, she felt rich, even though we were poor. We were rich in love. Uh, whenever we were without, which we were without a lot of, things that people like to have, um, including during my teenage years, indoor plumbing. <laughs> you know, I really lived in Northern Minnesota. We had an outhouse and we didn't have electricity for some of the years of my childhood. And um, my mother made everything feel abundant. Um, you can be very, I mean, we all know this, right? We can, you can be very rich in money and very scarce of spirit and heart and and love and generosity and joy. And so I grew up in a rich environment uh, that was optimistic and that believed in our power to be creative and resilient. And I think that, you know, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I have to say, um, it wasn't like I was saying to my mom, wow, you know, what What amazing messages you've passed along to me. <laughs> and here, it's funny, it's, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm thinking like, just a few minutes ago, I was saying to you, I, I don't know, I, I don't feel like my teens are taking my advice, you know, and it, what I'm realizing, I'm, I'm giving myself advice right now, as I'm talking to you on your podcast, is I realized it's like, but I am, because yeah. just like I wasn't wrapping my arms around my mom and saying, thank you, mom, you're so wise, you've imbued a real spirit of resilience and joy in me, you know, um, but she did. And I, of course, I couldn't acknowledge it or live it out or make sense of that until I myself was an adult, an adult and, and after she was dead. But I do think that I absolutely channel her in everything I do. And so maybe my kids will do the same with me, right? <laughs> I think with anything in life, it always comes in these like, like very unexpected moments. Yeah. Like we like to build it up like one day it's going to happen. One day when my <laughs> dream comes true, one day when my child runs to me and is like, you were right and you thank you, you're the best. And you know, it always comes in these like quiet, unsuspecting moments. And um, I mean, and that's the only way that they can, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's the best way that they can. For sure. I know it. I know it's, it's, it's true. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I feel like the biggest lesson I've learned is just, uh, it's so, yeah, I always kind of banked on this grandiose, like it, you know, it's the, it's the big birthday parties or the big holiday decorations or it's all these big things. <laughs> right. And it's so often the quiet moments of just, you know, sitting with someone a little longer without having them have to ask you to sit with them. Yeah. You know, it's hugging them a little longer and not letting go as fast. It's the putting the phone down when they're complaining or, you know, really what you might hear is complaining, but is them opening up their heart about yeah. something that's really stressful to them or even just quiet car rides. I, feel I like know. I, I do that a lot with my kids, that those quiet car rides or sharing music. My, my daughter lately is really into classic rock. 
So just this morning, you know, she's she's blasting Led Zeppelin and I was like, uh, you know, <laughs> okay, I listened to this a lot a long time ago. But then I thought, you know what, Cheryl, just she's sharing this music with you and, mm-hmm. you know, listen together. And it did, even though we didn't talk much, it feels like a kind of um, communication, which I just yeah. treasure and love. Yeah. Do you ever read or find a quote of yours? And then go like, wow, like, wow, that was good. Like I like relearn it all over again. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, like for me, my experience of writing, whether it be the the Dear Sugar column or or other forms of writing, honestly, like in my other books, very often the thing the things I write are things I myself need to remember, things I myself need to know, you know, and and that's why I think my advice in tiny beautiful things is kind of unique in that I'm not positioning myself in that place where I'm instructing people because I'm the wise one. I, I think of the, the my advice in tiny beautiful things is very horizontal. I'm saying, yes, I too am in this struggle. Even, you know, that I too grapple with stuff. I too have to remind myself of what I already know, kind of like when I just said, oh yeah, of course my kids are are getting some of my wisdom, just the same way I got my, you know, my wisdom, I got wisdom from my mom, even though I couldn't say thank you. Um, I'm, I'm receiving it, you know, I was receiving it and I was grateful. So like, I know these things sometimes in life all the time, I should say in life, we need to stumble along and um, remind ourselves what, what that best version is or what our capacity is to evolve and grow. And so it's not that I read my quotes and go, wow, what a, you know, what a wise woman that Cheryl Strait is. I don't feel that way, but I think, huh, yeah, good reminder. Yeah. I just think sometimes when, if you ever like look back in a journal or, you know, something that you jot down, I use like my notes app a lot on my phone. Yeah. And it just seems like a meaningless thought that pops into your head or in the moment you're like, oh, this is really good. And I want to remember this one day. And when you revisit it and go like, okay, yeah, she was on to something there. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, one thing, one project I've undertaken in the past year is I'm transcribing all of my journals. Uh, I, I kept journals from the time I was like 19 and until my late thirties, just, you know, handwritten journals. And I've decided to just type them all into a Word document. And that is such an amazing experience because I'm remembering things I forgot. And and I am sometimes having to transcribe things that I'm like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? But I am sometimes transcribing things where I'm thinking, wow, what a what a strong, wise, sturdy young woman. Or yeah, I knew that way back then. And and so it's it's a mix of all of those things. I, I feel really grateful I have those journals that I can remember. Um, to be even more gentle and forgiving of myself than I was before. I had a question that I was asked earlier, well, last asked towards the end of last week, and it kind of stuck with me. I added like a secondary podcast to this one that's just like a very casual, like I drink coffee and just answer questions that get submitted to me online. And one of the questions were where I liked to cry or where I found a safe place to cry. And it's, I have a very interesting relationship with crying because it has been a very bizarre part of my life as that it's just had to be part of my job for many years and a part Mm -hmm. of my job I strongly resent. Like I am (laughs) one of, I am not someone who enjoys crying with like in, as an actor, I really don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. My biggest like confusing Thing that my therapist is trying to figure out right now is like why I feel uncomfortable crying in therapy at this point. Like it, it's just, I, I feel like there's an interesting relationship I have with crying right now. Mm. And so I want to ask you, dear sugar, what is your take on crying? Where do you find to be a good place to cry? And at <laughs> this point in your life, what is your relationship with crying and a good old sob? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I've never thought of it like a place, but I, I agree with you. I think I think I certainly for sure prefer to cry alone. Um I I I don't know why. Why are so many of us embarrassed to cry? I don't know. Is it a like I know that generally gender, you know, if we want to take typical gender roles, it's like boys don't cry, girls are emotional, and but we're also like this generation of women that it's like you can't be emotional because it then it's like a bad 
thing. You're erratic as a woman and you're, you can't handle your emotions. And so, you know, I just said in response that the bathroom is usually a good place, but also it's so necessary. Like I always feel better after a good cry. There's times in my life, like even right now, I'm like, God, I just need to go and have a good snotty weeping cry, like a (laughs) cathartic cry. The cathartic cry. Oh, yeah. but then you want to like keep it all together so tightly. And so it, I just, it, that question just caught me off guard and I didn't really know how to, like it really made me think about my relationship at like at this time, you know, also as a parent, I feel like your relationship with crying changes because you try yeah. to like keep it away from your children. You know, like what, how do you cathartically cry? For me, I don't feel like, that I feel like, okay, I can't cry because I don't want to show weakness. I, I do, even though that's a message so many of us have received. I feel like I've pretty well rejected that. But for me, maybe what it is, as you've been talking and I'm reflecting on it, um, you know, I, I do think that like the cathartic cry, part of it, it's kind of like what I said about solitude. Like for me to really go all the way to that level of catharsis, I feel most comfortable doing it alone because, I, you know, I don't have to you know, there's nobody there to take care of. A lot of times when I, one of the last times I cried, I was with um, my girlfriends just a few days ago and one of them asked me a question and suddenly I just found myself as I was answering, starting to cry. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I tried to rein myself in and stop crying, which is, you know, a very typical response, I think. And, And later I thought about that. It wasn't that I was ashamed. It was that like, you know, it felt more important to me you know, it didn't feel safe to have a cathartic cry right there in that moment. It felt more important to me to communicate. And crying was like interfering with communicating, like telling telling the story I wanted to tell. And um, so for me, the best, like if I really am going for catharsis, it's it's to be alone and let yourself do it. You know, lock yourself in the bathroom if that's where you can do it. Go in your bedroom, you know, and howl to, or go out on a trail and howl to the moon. Um, I think that that's a really positive thing. You know, yeah, it's it's definitely necessary, but it's uh, I feel like it, there's also like the younger generation that just openly on like TikTok and stuff is all just like, and here are my feelings and all of my feelings. <laughs> I'm like, and, it, and I can't tell if it's just generational or if it's also just uh, time in life where it becomes like kind of to what you were saying. Like I, I don't want anyone to like I don't want to be a burden of someone to have to like take care of me or like yeah. think that I'm you know, I don't want to cause them stress. Um, But it was a very interesting uh, question that caught me off guard. And I'm sure you've had a lot of really beautiful questions that have have stumped you and made you kind of dive in deeper into your own feelings and thoughts on them over the years. Um, But I'm so excited for the show coming out. I mean, what incredible leading ladies, by the way, who like to just honor you and your life experiences between Reese Witherspoon and Catherine Hahn. I mean, dream by the way. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, Reese is, so Reese is an executive producer as well. And so is Laura Dern. She's, Reese isn't actually in the show. Um, It's Catherine Hahn. No, but Reese, um, when she played you in Wild. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah. I, yeah. That little fact. Yeah. You're right. (laughs) You remember. (laughs) I I thought you meant in Tiny Beautiful Things, but yes, to be, that's one thing I want to say. To be, to have this experience twice, to have Wild be made into a movie starring Reese Witherspoon playing me, and then to have Katherine Hahn starring um, in Tiny Beautiful Things, and and I will say that she is sugar, but the character she plays is is not me. But she's you know what we have certain things in common. She's a fiction a fictionalized um, mm-hmm. character, but we both write the sugar column, and so what an honor! These two extraordinary women who are so talented and so smart and so brilliant, and they—I can't wait for you all. I mean, you've all seen how great Reese was in Wild, but for you to see what Catherine does in Tiny Beautiful Things, she's just—you know—she's so funny and so real, and so so just her her wise essence just is in every moment, every breath um, in the show. So I can't wait for you to see it. I cannot wait to see it. All right. I've already taken up so much of your time. I could talk to you all day. I'm going to wrap it up very quickly with just, you love words. This is just a quick word association. I'm going to ask you five questions. Just first word that comes to mind. Uh Something that you like. Books. Something that you know. Beauty. 
uh, something that you hate? Beats. <laughs> so far, everything's a bee. I don't mean it to be this way. I hate I beets. I like, the, just like... like the vegetable. I hate beets. That is hilarious. In every um, form. There's a Tom Robbins has a great, my favorite, one of my favorite books, Jitterbug Perfume, but he opens with a whole beautiful homage to beets. And anyway, it's yeah. uh, very interesting. I, but that just I, I'm the anti-homage to beets. <laughs> um, something that you love that's not your family or your kids. Well, clearly I'm going to have to think of a word that doesn't start with the B because <laughs> <laughs> that just would be too weird. Something that I love. Um, oh, I absolutely love. What do I love? You know, this is so silly, but um, I love coconut. Is it weird to say I love coconut? No. Coconut, there, but there's especially no weird answer. Coconut cake. That is Ooh. my favorite cake, coconut cake. So what I love, Coconut cake. Whenever it's my birthday, my my family knows they have to get me a coconut cake. So every year I get a fabulous coconut cake. I feel like that's also the famous Tom Cruise cake. You know how like if you're like in with Tom Cruise, he sends cakes to everyone during the holidays. I read that. Yes. No, it's a real thing. I've heard people that have received the cake. It's a real thing. And, and is like it coconut? Time, I think it's coconut. I'd like put okay, money well. on I'm like 90%. So now you got, that's your next level. Your next right. book, and you got to get Tom Cruise in there. Tom's yeah. got to come in, and then you get the yearly coconut cake. That's right. So, Tom can get in touch, and I will happily give my mailing address so he can send me a cake. <laughs> Perfect. We'll make it happen. And then last but not least, just a quirky little fact about you. It can be longer than one word. I was the homecoming queen. Yes. <laughs> I mean, of course you were. Of course you were. <laughs> Little fact, little factoid. <laughs> in McGregor High School, McGregor, Minnesota, a little tiny school in northern Minnesota. Yes. That's amazing. Well, I still have my so crown. Much. I still have you the do? tiara they gave me. Yeah. <gasps> yep. Oh, man. Yep. Is it like in a in a box, like a plexiglass box? Or? It's, no, I just keep it in like my little, like I have like a jewelry box that I put it in. I, but it's not one of those nice like plexiglass pageant girl things now. <laughs> <laughs> One day, one day, one day. I'm gonna when I when I get very old, maybe I'll just take to wearing that tiara just around the house and so forth, just for the heck of it. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a Super Boom podcast, hosted by me, Candice King, produced by Melissa D. Montz and Diamond Imprint Productions, and advertisement partnerships with Acast.